0: We're starting a new series called Road Trip, and I don't know if you've taken any trips yet this summer, but uh, but I have. Last week, I, I went to Colorado, and I participated, went to my 40th high school reunion, and that was a trip. I got to tell you, I mean, there are a few people, they did not change in 40 years. I had only been to the 10th, so it has been 30 years since I'd seen any any of these people, and it was just amazing. And of course, I got a lot of the typical, so what do you do? Well, I'm a, you're a pastor? Really? You know, you, you got a lot of that kind of going on, and uh, I, I guess that's to be expected. And, and people don't know how to react when you're a pastor. Well, what do I say? And uh, actually, a, a football buddy of mine w- was doing the hosting, and he said he had asked me prior would I, would I lead in a prayer. And I said, yeah, and then I could, he called me aside that evening that that was going to happen. And he said, Kevin, I, I just need to know your title. So is it reverend? And I'm like, well, you know, it could, reverend applies, but really I, I normally go by pastor. And then I see him writing it down, like he's not familiar with these terms, you know, and he's writing it down a little notepad. And then it comes time for him to introduce me, and he introduces me. Mr. <laughs> reverend Reverend. Pastor Kevin Pinkerton, so, you know, and I go up there, I'm like, wow, you know, at home they just call me Kevin, here I'm Mr. Reverend Pastor Kevin Pinkerton, so uh, I'm I'm expecting you guys to up your game a little bit now, so I've got a title, and I like it, but, um, so we're talking about road trip, and really this is a, a, a series about Exodus, it's the greatest road trip in human history, recorded for us in the book of Exodus, and we're going to start today with the calling of a leader. Uh, God wants to deliver his people from Egypt. There's a whole situation, and, and I'll give you that. As a matter of fact, we'll look at that situation, God's calling of a leader, and then how he responds to that. So we'll dive right in. Really, the story of the Exodus begins in Genesis, and it actually begins with Abraham, who was first called Abram. And God comes to Abram, who lives in the Ur of the Chaldees, and asks him to go to this place, which later will be called Israel or Palestine. And he goes there, and, and then he makes these promises to Abram. And here's how it goes in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And then we pick it up a couple of chapters later in Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 13. He says, God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed "'400 years, but I will also judge the nation "'whom they will serve, "'and afterward they will come out with many possessions. "'As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. "'You will be buried at a good old age. "'Then in the fourth generation they will return here, "'for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete.'" And I know that last phrase seems a little out of place for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And really, he's talking about the the reconquering of the land after the exodus, and so we're jumping ahead a little bit. But just the reason I want to comment on that, a lot of people look at that phrase right there and they would say, this is a reason that I could never worship God. That God had Israel conquer this land and, and kill these people. And what we're pointed out here is there's another side to that. It's not that just God is giving this land to Israel. It's that the people in the land, the Amorites, are evil in the sight of the Lord. And really the context that maybe would help us understand this today is if you would think of a culture like ISIS, where they are murdering, killing people, killing innocent people, making war, terrorism, all this stuff. And God says to a culture like ISIS, Isis, I'm going to give you 400 years. And if you don't change, and when you don't change, then I will judge you. And that's exactly what happened. God judged them and used uh, the people of Israel to do that. He was accomplishing dual purposes when all of that happened. So God promises Abraham that his descendants will grow and be, become a great nation. But he's telling them before that happens, they're going to end up enslaved in a foreign country for 400 years. And so this is Abraham. And and then as as the family grows, we follow Abraham's family tree. When I came back on Tuesday, my mom flew back with me because she wanted to see her newest great-granddaughter. And so there's three great-grandchildren. One due in September will be her fourth great-grandchild. So as cool as it is to have grandkids, it must be even cooler to have great-grandkids. And so she's doing it. Well, the story really picks up from Abraham to Abraham's great-grandson, great-great-grandson, actually, is a man named Joseph. So it's Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of them is Joseph. He's the great-grandson of Abraham. And his brothers, he irritates his brothers so much that they actually sell him to slave traders heading to Egypt. He spends some time in Egypt. God works through his life. After a lot of years of, of being a slave and being imprisoned, he ends up being the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. There's a famine in the land that has something to do with that. And and finally, Joseph invites his brothers and his father Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, to come to Egypt where they'll be given a place and they can hang out and, and everything will be great. And there's 75 of them at that time in the clan. And they go to Egypt and everything works out great for a while. And then we pick it up. Setting the context for Exodus chapter 1. I want to read from verse 6, starting there. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful, and increased greatly, and multiplied, and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt... Who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of a war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. And so basically, what he's saying is, Hey, they're multiplying so much, this is going to cause us a problem. We get in a fight. They could turn against us. Things could go bad for us because they're thriving. And this new pharaoh sees them as a threat, and so he enslaves them, which is interesting because that's a bad thing. But if you think about the context of the Middle East at this time, where Jacob lived before his inflation, enslavement, and and Joseph, where the Israelites lived, basically all of the Middle East except for Egypt, they lived in clans, and these clans constantly fought each other. And because of that history, there were constant blood feuds between these clans, and these clans kept basically uh, cutting themselves down in size. They kept thinning each other out through this constant warfare with their neighbors. Now, Israel's family, or Jacob's family, ends up down in Egypt. They're a clan of about 75 then, when Joseph invites his dad and his brothers down. And there, they live in this nation, and they're protected. And they start multiplying and increasing to the point where the Egyptians are going, wow, this could be a problem and this could go bad for us so the egyptians oppressed them they enslaved them but even then even then that really served god's purposes because even in that enslavement in egypt it served as an incubator to grow this nation and why would that happen well one thing our slaves are valuable And when you have slaves, and slaves are worth a lot of money, then you encourage them to multiply. Well, Israel starts growing and growing. And later, when they become refugees, they leave Egypt. They went in 75 people. They leave Egypt, maybe a million people strong. People estimate 600,000 fighting men strong when they crossed the Red Sea and left Egypt. And so even when they were enslaved. God used what was evil for a good purpose in the lives of the Israelites. And sometimes we see the same thing among oppressed people and refugees today. There's refugee crises in different parts of the world. And and typically what happens is there's a totalitarian regime who this regime then starts uh, oppressing people and people start fleeing the country. And then that causes a problem for another country, but typically when they flee, they're leaving a totalitarian regime and they're going to a country where there's no freedom. And typically if they go to a country where there's even more freedom, a lot of times that country is a country where there is Christianity, especially if they escape the Muslim world. Muslim-dominated countries don't allow freedom of religion, but the rest of the world pretty much does now. And so they, they go... To countries where there's freedom and there's Christianity, a lot of times Christian people are helping them and they have a chance to become believers. And so God, again, uses something that's evil. He can use that for good in their lives. And, and even we're involved in that. For example, in September, um, I'm leading a team to Thailand. And, and while we're there, we're checking on our orphanages there. But we'll also visit the western border of Thailand where it borders Myanmar or Burma, and there's a lot of Burmese refugees in Thailand that we're trying to help with schools and, and for their kids and orphans there, and also adults there that we're trying to help people, really. And, uh, and so our team's going to see that, and we'll be looking uh, for uh, any place that we can help suffering people in the name of Jesus. So that's just kind of what happens. And so Israel becomes even more numerous, even though they're enslaved. And then a new pharaoh comes along, and he says, "You know, they're still increasing. What we need to do is we need to kill all the male children." So he instructs the midwives that when the Hebrew women are giving birth, that if it's a male child, they'll kill them. Kill, that they're, they're to kill them. So the pharaoh uses a lot something a lot like what we would call partial birth abortion today to eliminate the male children uh, of the Hebrew women. But the midwives honor God, and, and they take part in what we would call civil disobedience, and, and uh, they decide you know they're not going to do it, so they, they don't do as they're instructed. They actually lie to the authorities, and they save all these children's lives. And, and then the pharaoh makes another law, And he says, okay, this whole childbirth thing isn't working. Now, here's the deal. Any male child that's found, even after he's born, even after he's, you know, older, needs to be cast into the Nile. And so he's going to kill them that way. And that's where Moses' story begins, right? So Moses' mom has a son. She already has a daughter, Miriam. And now she has a son. And so she makes a reed basket and she places him in it. She actually hides him for about three months. And then when she can't hide him anymore, she puts him in this reed basket and has him floating in the Nile and probably strategically places him in the Nile where some of Pharaoh women from Pharaoh's own household bathe. And so Pharaoh's daughter finds, and there may be a lot of Pharaoh's daughters, but he One of Pharaoh's daughters finds this reed basket with the baby. Uh, Moses' mom has asked his sister Miriam to watch over and kind of check everything out, tell what happens. And when the Pharaoh's daughter looks and finds the baby, the the older sister, the little girl, shouts out and says, Do you want me to go find a, a, a wet nurse for this baby to feed and raise this child for you? And the Pharaoh's daughter says, yes. And then ironically, Moses' mom is paid to raise Moses. And when he hits somewhere between five and eight years, he's then turned over to the palace, and then he is educated in the best that Egypt has to offer. And so that's how Moses starts his life. He, he knows he's a Hebrew but he's also an adopted Egyptian. And so he has these two lives that he's kind of dealing with, and he's wrestling with this. Because he has to basically decide which identity he's going to embrace. And then we fast forward the story until Moses is about 40 years old. And he's still struggling with this. And he realized it's his people that's being enslaved. He's a lot like Joseph, who was Hebrew, but also kind of became an Egyptian. The difference is now Hebrews are enslaved, so it's an issue for him. He sees an Egyptian taskmaster beating a Hebrew. He intervenes. He kills the guy. And then basically what's happening there, he's choosing to be with God's people but he's acting rashly, and he's doing something in the wrong way, and that leads to him having to flee Egypt, and he ends up north of Egypt in in the Sinai Peninsula in the wilderness, becomes a shepherd, and he does that for 40 more years. Could you imagine 40 years in the wilderness? You've been in Egypt the world power Egypt was the greatest world power at that time you were raised in the luxury of Egypt as a prince and now you're in the wilderness from your 40th year to your 80th year and you got to be wondering at that point wow what happened to my life I tried to follow God and it went bad on me and here I am I'm kind of stuck I remember as I was at one of the functions of our reunion, I sat down at the end of a table between two friends uh, who were both married. And, and then you know how you have this conversation, you're getting reconnected, right? And so I'm asking Brian, who also was kind of a jock guy, and I'm saying, hey, Brian, what, uh, so what do you do now? And then he starts telling me, well, you know, I've been in energy, co- he, he, the guy was brilliant in high school and still is. But he's saying, well, I, I got into energy companies, and I actually bought a few energy companies in succession and built them up and sold them for a profit. <laughs> I'm just sitting there going, wow. He goes, right now, I'm the CFO over two energy companies. Right now, we're in coal. I'm based out of Tulsa. I'm doing this. Our companies are from uh, Kentucky all the way to Colorado. You know what I am mean? Just like, wow. You know, this guy accomplished a lot. So then I turned to this other young lady, Jane, who went to high school, and I, I asked her, well, what are you doing? Jane, she says, well, I'm actually involved in hospital philanthropy, and you know, I sit on the board of this, and we give money to this and this and the other thing, and, and she goes, I'm also on the board of Colorado State University, which is where I graduated from, and she goes on and tells about that. Later, Monty tells me, who's, who's a football coach in college, yeah, I've been to games where she's introduced out on the field up north in Colorado, but whatever. You know, so she's telling me all this, well, then I'm saying, well, her husband was with her, so I'm like, "Well, what do you do?" And he's like, "Well, I'm based in Colorado Springs. I'm a defense contractor, and we've developed the missile guidance system for this missile, and this missile, and this missile." And I'm just like, "Wow, what table am I sitting at? You know, I'm at the rich table. I, I you know, I, I don't belong here. You know, it's just kind of strange." And I think back at, on that, and you know, and, and they're not pretentious. They're just just like they were in high school. Just great people. I'm thinking, "Wow, God has really." It's just interesting how all that happens, and, and then I'm thinking, you know, I wouldn't trade my life for anything. I wouldn't, I love what I do. God has given me this as a gift, and I wouldn't trade spots with either one of them, but it's just cool to, to see all that kind of play out Well, that. You know, what's Moses thinking 40 years go by? He's got to be thinking his life was just wasted. I mean, He had this opportunity, he thought he could be a leader, he kind of decided to go God's way, and it it just was a train wreck, and now he's just been wandering around in the desert ever since, and that's when God calls him, and we probably have all heard the story. God appears to Moses in a burning bush, and the bush is not consumed, and Moses is out in the wilderness, he sees that, and he's like, wow, that's weird. I'm going to go check this out. And then he has this meeting with God. I want to pick that up. It's in Exodus chapter 3. And uh, let me read a little bit of that for you. 2 to 6. The angel of the Lord appeared to him. And by the way, the angel of the Lord, most of the time when you're reading the angel of the Lord, it's usually best to take that as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Because sometimes he talks about God Sometimes he talks as God. But anyway, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight while the bush is not burned up. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. And then he said, Do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said also, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid. To look at God. This is just a reminder for us that as God calls Moses, God always initiates relationship with us. No matter how, if you're sitting here as a Christian, no matter how you became a Christian, no matter what those circumstances were, for me, it was as a sixth grader in New Mexico. No matter what your situation was, it's really God who initiates that meeting. It's, it's God that gives us the ability to respond. It's God that makes himself acknowledgeable in our life. God always initiates relationship with us. The problem is, we don't always respond. You know, as I'm sitting at that table that I mentioned, I'm, I'm talking to these people, and I realize. Brian, who's married, and Jane, who's married, these two people have stayed in contact the whole 40 years. And they're good friends, and they've stayed at each other's house, although they live in different cities. You know, it takes effort to initiate and sustain relationship. But I, I just want you to know, God is making the effort to initiate and sustain a relationship with you. Of course we have to respond to have that relationship. It's it's kind of a two-way street there. And God teaches Moses something right here. Not only is he initiating a relationship, but he's teaching Moses something about God. Basically, it's I'm holy and you're not. You know, we all need to remember that, right? God's God and whatever we know about God, the one thing we know about God is we ain't God. We ain't him. And so he's, he's verifying that, talking about his holiness. And then God not only initiates this, this call with Moses, but he calls Moses in, in this event. He calls Moses to serve him as a leader and impact the world. Now, if we could fast forward to our day Please know that if you're sitting here as, as, not as a believer, God wants a relationship with you, and he's trying to initiate that relationship. He's revealed himself. He, he, you're here for a reason. I believe it's a God thing that you're sitting here if you're not a believer. And if you're sitting here as a believer, God is calling you to serve. Do you, do you realize that? In the New Testament, as we become believers for the last 2,000 years, anyone who becomes a Christian, anyone who places their faith in Christ alone, God calls you to be involved in serving him within the local church. Everybody. God wants that for everybody. It's God's intention for everybody. God has gifted every Christian with the ability to serve the local church. And if you don't do that, then our church is not everything that it could be. Because God's given you to us and you have, you have gifts and abilities and they're not being used. But God put you here to use them. And, and we want you to join us. I know a lot of people I have a hard time understanding. I remember when, when this kind of hit me it was when i was at colorado state you know about finishing up my degree there and then i realized that god has called all of us to serve him and so i knew i you know it's my desire that i'd be always involved in a local church no matter where i lived or whatever i was doing for a living that i would be volunteering i would be working a local church and so to the point where i actually you know i was single so it's easy for me to do this but I actually decided I'm going to go to a year of Bible college, you know, because I want to, I want to volunteer in a church, so a year Bible, it can't hurt, right? I'll go to a year of Bible college just to kind of learn a little more about God, just to serve as a volunteer. But at some point, you know, for me, God gave me the desire to teach. And, and I know. A lot of people talk about the call of God these days, and they make it real mysterious. Well, God called me to go be a pastor. God called, you know, I don't know if you've been in churches where they talk like that. But, you know, I was always kind of like, okay, what's that now? And let me just explain that in my own life. Is that fair enough to kind of clear that up? So, so basically, I'm in college at uh, Colorado State and uh, in business. And then I know that I wanted to volunteer in a church. I'm a serious Christian, not a super great Christian or anything, but, you know, I knew God was important. And uh, so I go off to Bible college, and I do that for a year, and, you know, that goes okay. I mean, it's just all right. I almost got kicked out. Some things happen. And so, anyway, so I left there, and, I'm, and that took a lot of money, and I'm, I'm out of money. So I, I go to the Panhandle of Texas, and I work for... Uh, You know, the the oil fields were booming there, and I was in Dumas, and so I'm working, I'm just trying to get money. Little did I know that a classmate of mine probably owned that company that I was working for, you know, but whatever. So, you know, I'm doing that, and then I, basically, I'd been working in banking all through college, so I was on my way uh, to head up to Denver. Ironically, I hear jobs are getting really tight in Denver, can't find jobs, so I leave and go to Denver to hurry up and get one before it gets worse. And uh, I end up as a branch manager of a bank... You know, and and I'm 23 years old. I'm a branch manager of savings and loan. Just, you know, it's a little. They actually, after I got that job, it was supposed to be a six-month training. They actually pulled me out of training like two months later. I had already worked in three banks during college. And they pulled me out of training and just gave me a branch. It was a small branch. And, uh, And I did that. And then, you know, several months later, when the other guys got out of training, I noticed they got nicer, bigger branches. So, you know, I didn't like that, but whatever. But I love my job. And I realized, wow, I'm 23. You know, I'm the first one they picked to, to pull out and, and lead up a branch. And, you know, I'm kind of seeing, wow, this could go well for me. I could climb the corporate ladder. I could make some serious cash. And then I'm thinking, well, how am I going to use that for the kingdom? And so I love the mountains. So I'm thinking, wow, well, I'll go up the mountains. I'll, I'll buy some land. I'll build a camp, you know, Young people can go up there. They'll come to Christ. You know, I'll be a key player in all this. And so that's my plan. I'm going to do there, and I'm working hard, and I I like my job. But then I start realizing, and and I can only explain this as a God-given desire, because it's just not natural in me. I just had this desire that I wanted to be the one to teach people about God. And so I didn't want to be the, the money guy in Denver, as, as fun as that was. And, and tracking people's money, other people's money, you know, it just wasn't, didn't seem as important enough. Uh, any job is a good job, and I liked that job. I liked all my jobs. But I ended up leaving and going to uh, Virginia and going to seminary. And then I completed a couple of graduate degrees, and and then I came here as as a custodian and assistant youth pastor. And I came here, I had an education, a good education. I had zero experience just because of the nature of my work in Virginia while I was working myself through graduate school. Zero experience. And I came here just to find out, can I even do this? And, uh, and you guys gave me a chance. And, and, I, and so here's a guy, no experience. You know, I've never preached. I've never taught. I've never done anything. I had never cleaned a toilet either, but they got me over that real fast. And so I start, and I'm learning all this new stuff. And here's how it happened. Because three years later, I became a senior pastor. No experience. And, and here's what, I'm, I, I just want to say this, what God did for me. So I come I work full-time as a custodian. I'm the assistant youth pastor. The first thing I do is I teach a college-age Sunday school class. Okay, these are like people just about my age. Very easy. Oh, this is great. I can relate. There's only 10 people here, maybe 15, whatever. It's good. Then, after a little while, I took on the Wednesday night youth rally, which was very intimidating. There's junior high and senior high kids in there. At that time, I switched to teaching high school on Sundays, junior high year. Then after, you know, maybe a year or so, then it was, I was on the rotation to speak at our Sunday night service. And Sunday night service was always smaller than Sunday morning service, so it's an easy place to develop people. It's one of the things that we have to figure out here is developing leaders and not having that. But anyway, so once in a while, I preached on Sunday night. Then I started preaching like every other Sunday night. Then our senior pastor left. And we divided the Sunday morning preaching up between three pastors on staff, me and two other guys. So, I preached like once every month on Sunday morning. Then they made me and one of the guys co-senior pastor, so I preached every other Sunday morning. Then a few months later, he left and I was preaching every Sunday morning. Do you see the baby steps involved? If you make yourself available, God works all that out. So, What my weakness was, was no experience. In three years, God just, you know, and I know some pastors, they have no experience. Back in the day, like the generation ahead of me, no experience. They'd walk into a church, preach on Sunday morning, teach Sunday school class, preach on Sunday night, and preach on Wednesday night. They're doing it all. I don't think I could have ever done that. And so for my personality, God just gives me these baby sets. Enough of that. But anyway, I'm just saying, hey, if you do... What God calls you to do. And you don't think you can do it. I didn't think I could do it. I had to find out. I spent a lot of time and money to do it. So I I was invested. So I had to go ahead and take the next step. Even though I loved the job I was doing that I left in Virginia. Saying God will make a way. So God calls us. But just like Moses, you know what happens a lot of times? God calls And just like us today, here come the excuses. Boom. We start thinking of all the reasons. Me, no experience. Can't do it. Never done this before. Look at chapter 3, starting in verse 11. But Moses, this is all happening. God's talking to Moses through a burning bush that's not being consumed. And telling him what he wants him to do. Verse 11. But Moses said to God... Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain, and you realize they're on Mount Sinai. Then Moses said to God, behold, I'm going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What what shall I say to them? It's a key point in history because God reveals his personal name. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, this, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am. Has sent me to you. And this is the personal name to God translated into English. It's I am. That's the personal name of God. It's Yahweh. Y H W H is how we spell it in English. We don't even know for sure how to pronounce Yahweh because when it was first spoken, it was written in Hebrew. Back then, Hebrew didn't have any vowels. Later, they added vowel pointing around the consonants in Hebrew. And so that's where Hebrew gets its vowels. But by the time they added the vowel pointing, they had not spoken the name Yahweh in centuries. So nobody really even knows if Yahweh is the correct pronunciation of God's name. But what's going on? Why is God revealing to this shepherd out in the wilderness, his personal name, because God wants relationship with us and with Moses. So he not only reveals himself, he reveals himself personally. And then it continues. Moses, he just doesn't let up. Exodus 4.1. Then Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? Actually, God had just told them, they will listen to you. But Moses, more excuses. Moses said, what if they will not believe me or listen to me? Listen to what I say. For they may say, the Lord has not appeared to you. So he said, well, what if they don't buy it, God? What if I go there and they're not buying it and they're just, they're, they're out of here. And, and then Moses gives them, or God gives Moses these supernatural signs. Okay, well, if you're worried about that, let me lay some things on you. Throw your staff down, becomes a snake, freaks him out. And he says, you know, put your hand into your clothing and pull it out, and it's leprous, put it back in. It's like, you know, supernatural stuff. Pour some water out of the Nile, land it, it's going to turn into blood. And so God gives him these amazing signs. Two of them he sees right there. So he's equipped. Man, he's going to be able to convince people the God of the world sends him. But that's still not enough for Moses. Look, verse 10. Of chapter 4. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in times past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? It is not I, the Lord. Now then, go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. Excuses, and God is just answering it. You're wondering, you know, how long is this gonna go on? Because he keeps throwing up these excuses, God keeps answering, and you kind of get the impression God's patience wearing a little thin. You say, I'm a terrible speaker. I remember The worst class I ever, high school reunion, sorry I keep going back to this, but you know, it's just dominating my thinking for the last week or so. The worst class I had in high school, speech. Somebody told me that was an easy class, and I went in there, and it was an easy class, but then they uncorked the news by some tragic twist of faith that, twist of fate that you got to stand up there and do a five minute speech in front of 20 people and I'm like I can't do that I cannot do I didn't sign up for this I just came to take speech class I didn't come to make a speech isn't that ironic I do this all the time that was the worst thing that's just the worst thing I ever did in high school and it did not go well Five minutes, and I know some of you are like, you need to stick with that five minutes, Kevin. (laughs) You know, I get it, I get it, but whatever. It didn't go well at five minutes either, you know. He's still making excuses. Look at verse 13, but then he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. He's now bordering on, it's not so much excuses, now it's disobedience. Hey, God, use somebody else. I do not want to do this is what he's saying. It's becoming disobedience. God's calling, Moses knows it, and he's basically saying, don't wanna do it. And God reacts kind of in an angry way, but, but still loves him. And Moses finally gets with the program and the question is, what's God calling you to do today? What is it? You know, maybe you're already serving here at Grace. And maybe God's calling you to the next step in leadership. You know, we, we've lost people to Grace Point. Our, our church is still growing. We're... You know, Maybe it's time for you to step up because you know you're serving, but it's not challenging you or stretching you at all. Maybe God wants you to step up. Maybe that's not really enough. You know you could be doing more for God. Some of you, you haven't even, you know, it's not first base yet, and you're in first service, so that's really a lot of pressure because first service people, they're involved, and you're not really serving. And maybe it's just that, just start serving somewhere. Just step up and say, yeah, I'm going to be a part of the team. Yeah, I'm going to find a place that I can serve. And, and, and we'll try to help you find a place that you love serving. But there also might be some here that, that maybe God's calling you to full-time ministry. I, I don't want to make a big deal out of full-time ministry because if you're doing what you're doing, part-time, full-time, the, the point is you're serving God. But Full-time ministry means you have a lot more time that you can dedicate toward doing ministry. And maybe God's calling you to that. You know, And that can happen at any point in life. It's easier when you're young. And we want to develop people. If, you're, if you don't serve and you want to serve, we want to help you do that. We will train you and help you. If you're serving but you know you ought to do more, we want to help you take that next step. Go to that next level. That's what we're here for. We we do that all the time. And if you're even considering full-time ministry, we have a way to help you do that. We will train you. We have internships. You know, we have residencies that we're developing. You know, to do that. It doesn't matter. Only you know what God's calling you to, do, what He's calling you. To. He's calling all of us to serve. But how to do that? Only you know. Let's stand and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the day and we thank you for every person that's here. And God, we thank you for who you are and your love and that you've revealed yourself and you revealed yourself in truth. We get to know what's right and wrong. And Lord, mysteriously, somehow you use people to accomplish your purposes. You don't have to, but that's what you do. And that you want all of your people involved in your agenda on earth. And to that, first of all, Lord, we just say thank you. But then we also say, God, help us find our niche. Help us to find our our place where we can serve you effectively. Lord, help us to listen to the people around us. Lord, help us to develop a passion to follow you and serve you, a passion for your church. God, help us to make a difference. And God, thanks that you use ordinary, below average people like me. Thanks. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks for being here. We're going to continue our series next Sunday. Big week, be praying for that. See you next week, thanks.